This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, January 17th. I'm Gavin McGough. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, oil and gas at issue in regional land use plan. Life and loss in the mountains. A pair of skis for Hillary. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, Telluride lost a member of its community this week. Longtime local Joel Lee was found dead in his Telluride Lodge home on Tuesday. He was 78 years old. Telluride marshals were called to Lee's home for a welfare check after he had uncharacteristically missed several meetings. Lee spent his life serving in many hospital administrative positions and possessed an ardent love of photography. The cause and manner of death are under investigation. Crippen Funeral Home will attend to services. Lee is survived by his sister, Nancy. The Uncompagre Plateau is a large uplift of land stretching across a vast portion of central southwest Colorado. Its name is a Ute word, translating roughly to rocks that make water red. The Bureau of Land Management oversees almost a million acres of public lands on and around the plateau, stretching from Delta County in the north down to Ure and San Miguel counties in the south. The area is governed as the Uncompagre Field Office of the BLM, and like other public lands, decisions about how to use the terrain are governed by a resource management plan, which are formed every decade or so through a lengthy planning process. Public Affairs Officer with the Southwest Region of the BLM, Maggie McGee, explains. A typical resource management plan, we expect that it will be um, good for about 10 to 20 years. But um, within that time period, we do expect that we will need to perform plan maintenance and possibly plan amendments. And, you know, we're, we're, we have to keep it current in response to, response to things like corrected information, new policies and regulations, um, changing conditions on the ground. And in this case, legal action. The latest Uncompagre Resource Management Plan was released only a few years ago, but McGee recognizes it was quickly caught up in a flurry of lawsuits. We did issue the um, Resource Management Plan for the Uncompagre Field Office in April of 2020. Um, so it is pretty quick that we're, we're looking at this amendment, but um, we're, we're responding to litigation. That legal action comes down to three lawsuits, one brought by the state of Colorado and two brought by conservation groups based in the North Fork Valley. The BLM reached settlements in those suits and agreed to reopen its plan in order to address the areas of concern. Those areas listed in the legal settlement are a re-examination of habitat protections for the endangered Gunnison sage grouse, a look at the issue of oil and gas leasing in big game corridors and big game habitat, and a more general look at barring certain areas from oil drilling. Compared to the existing plan, says McGee, We're, we're going to consider an alternative that would increase the total number of acres closed to new oil and gas leasing and consider designation of areas of critical environmental concern and consider management of lands with wilderness characteristics. 
Natasha Legere is the executive director of Citizens for a Healthy Community, which brought one of the lawsuits against the BLM's 2020 resource plan. She says the issue comes down to protecting the Uncompahgre Plateau, its flora and fauna, from excessive oil drilling, and simultaneously protecting the world's citizens from climate change. Our ecosystems are currently being threatened and are under ecological stress. And the Bureau of Land Management has the opportunity and has the power to mitigate those stresses. And so it's really important that the public comment and let the BLM know how we want to see our public lands managed for present and future generations. The BLM is currently in public scoping for the plan amendments. This means if the public has comments, concerns, or new information to guide the planning process, now is the time to get in touch. The scoping period is open until February 20th. McGee invites the public to get involved reflecting on the lawsuits and the need to reopen the plan so soon after its passage, she says it's really no surprise. There are always going to be disagreements on on the decisions that the BLM makes, so that it's not uncommon. It's actually fairly common. Three public meetings are on the books to discuss the amendment process. Two take place on Zoom on January 23rd at 1 p.m. and on the 24th at 4.30 p.m. An in-person meeting will be held at 4 p.m. on February 1st at the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose. For more information and to submit comment, visit eplanning.blm.gov. Graham Zimmerman didn't love climbing the first time he went out. When I first went climbing, which was on the Cascadian volcanoes outside of Seattle, Washington, I, I remember being cold. I remember being scared. I remember being way outside of my comfort zone. I remember being badly fatigued. And I also remember being like really, really badly sunburned. Um, and they're, they're not particularly pleasant memories. But Zimmerman's feelings toward climbing changed. By the time he was in his late teens, he was in love with it. Still only in his 30s, Zimmerman is a sponsored athlete who has made first ascents from Alaska to Pakistan. The reason that I continue to go back to the mountains time and time again is because they are this incredible space where I learn so much about myself, about the world around me, and about how I can work with others in order to really take on the challenges. And... The, the, the value of those lessons is immense. Zimmerman will be in Telluride on Thursday for a talk about his new memoir, A Fine Line, Searching for Balance Among Mountains. In the book, he explores the intersection of love and passion for outdoor adventure with the inevitable risk and loss that comes from the sport. Zimmerman says he wanted to use writing as a tool to honor and memorialize people he's lost, but also showcase ways to go into the mountains, do hard things, and still come home. If we make sure that we're getting at them in the right way, if we make sure that we're showing up prepared, we make sure that we're showing up with the right strategy and with the right people, and then in the right headspace, headspace in which we are there to take on opportunity for when things are right, but also have this long view on climbing that allows for us to say, I'm going to go home or I'm not going to try this time when things are not right, 
is like the balance of those two things is ultimately what will allow for us as individuals and as a community to succeed in doing these really audacious things, but also making sure that we have a really high probability of coming home in one piece. Zimmerman emphasizes the importance of finding balance in tackling the hardest climb and nurturing other pieces of life. When I was a young climber, I was brought into the the perspective of the generation before me that told me that if there was anything in my life that was not in service to climbing, then it was making me a lesser climber. And therefore, I should try to peel all that stuff away. I should leave all that behind me and really focus in on just becoming this pure, best climber that I can be. And as a young man, as a young climber, I loved that perspective. I thought it was just great. Through mentorship and certain inflection points, Zimmerman says he shifted his thinking. In fact, the best climber that that I can be is somebody who balances climbing against all these other responsibilities and goals in my life in a meaningful way. And and doesn't silo climbing away from those things, but instead builds climbing into those other goals and objectives, things like being a climate advocate, things like being a strong community member, things like being a good partner to my wife, Shannon, um, that, that by really having climbing interwoven with those things and having climbing be a part of those, uh, the part of that work or part of those relationships, that they can all get better. Outside of climbing, Zimmerman works for Climate Justice. He's president of the American Alpine Club and works with Protect Our Winters. He says climbing has helped inform that work. When we talk about um, ways that we can engage our community to take on climate action, or to think about uh, social justice, or the intersection between those two things, what we refer to as climate justice, I, I find consistently that the stories that I gather in the mountains are one of the best tools that I have for bringing folks in. You know, facts about climate change or facts about social equity are crucial. Um, having hard, hard information is, is, is really important for doing work, of course. But the way that you bring people along and the way that you bring people in is through stories. For those who come to the talk, Zimmerman says he first and foremost wants them to be inspired to try hard things. But he also hopes individuals are encouraged to lean in rather than tune out. Climbing doesn't need to be something where we use it as a tool just to run away and kind of get away from the big challenges that we face in the world. But it can be something that we leverage in order to take those challenges head on and have an impact. As they think about why they go climbing and what they do when they come home and how they, as, as members of our, of our outdoor community, can, can really have a significant impact on the world around them. Graham Zimmerman's discussion on a fine line, searching for balance among mountains, will take place on Thursday, January 18th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Telluride Arts HQ Gallery. Yeah. I haven't seen this pair yet. Yeah, they're real sweet. They've got nice coloring. Off a sidewalk, under an awning, across from the gondola station at Oak Street Plaza, I meet Graydon Stanley O'Neill by a ski locker to check out his latest gear. They're a pair of gorgeous blizzards released last fall, which glow pink and blue in the mottled shades of watercolor. At the tips, a mountain peak emerges. 
Here's O'Neill. I'm not 100% sure what the mountain is, but I think it's the Lotse Mountain, which is the fourth tallest in the world, because there's a very obvious couloir through the top of it on one of the skis. Acclaimed ski mountaineer Hillary Nelson and her partner Jim Morrison completed the first ski descent of that couloir in 2018. For many, the mountain is synonymous with Nelson and her legacy. So I think it was probably the biggest milestone for her and one of her happiest moments. Nelson was O'Neill's mother, and she died in September 2022 while skiing on Mount Manaslu in Nepal. The Blizzard skis are a tribute to Nelson and a memorial. On the right ski, the watercolor shows a lone wolf howling into the mountain air. O'Neill points down below to the ski tips where two wolf cubs are huddled, gazing playfully down the slope. It seems, to me, it would seem like they represent me and my brother because it's like, or and it could also represent her passion for the mountains, such like the colors, like the watercolor red could represent her passion for all the mountains and what she does. The skis have made a splash in Telluride, and though they're a limited edition release with fewer than 200 pairs made, quite a few of those pairs have made it to the Box Canyon that Nelson called home. I already when I was home for winter break, I saw a majority of people who knew her like were skiing on them. And I thought that was super cool. And I feel really lucky to be able to be part of that. That's Maya Ko, who grew up in Telluride and now goes to school and skis in Bozeman, Montana. Many of those skiing on the Hillary Nelson skis knew Nelson personally, either as a close friend or someone about town. She was an inspiration, embodying the spirit of the mountain life. Nelson was a friend of Ko's family when she was growing up, but Ko says Hillary was also just Hillary. She's the most badass woman ever, of course, and my mom would tell me all these stories about her, and we would like watch these films about her, and I just felt so like lucky to know her, basically. This sentiment resonated with many I spoke to about the skis and the legacy of Nelson. Fern Garber is a Telluride local who knew Nelson from around town and first heard of the skis through her job at Jagged Edge. Being a female skier and being out in the mountains and having those pairs of skis underneath my feet, it makes me feel like I have her with me. Also, yeah, as a woman, just to be able to represent how amazing she was as an athlete and how hard she pushed and what she was able to accomplish during her career, I'm proud to represent that for her and carry on her legacy. The design is the work of Malia Reeves, a painter and ski patroller based in Taos, New Mexico. Reeves was unsurprised to hear that many were resonating with a sense of feminine power contained within Hillary's legacy. As a professional full-time ski patroller in a very male-dominated workspace, I think about the women who have kind of set that path before me all the time. And Hillary is definitely one of those women. And some of them are people in my personal life, um, like my mother, who was also a ski patroller in the 80s before me. Um, and some of them are women like Hillary who have um, have really shown, not just me, but uh, the whole world, what's possible. A picture book honoring Nelson titled Leader of the Pack was also produced as part of the project, a collaboration between Reeves, artist Soleil Patterson, and writer Kimberly Beekman. All proceeds from the sale of the book and from the skis themselves go to the Hillary Nelson Fund, which Blizzard established to fund projects empowering women in the outdoors. Reeves says she originally designed the skis with just a lone wolf, but found it was too stark 
too solitary to fit Nelson's story. She added a whole pack of wolves. Then, in the final design, she says, We decided just to go with two wolf cubs on the back of the skis, which kind of metaphorically represents her family and her two sons, but but also represents all of us who um, have the privilege of being a part of the pack under her leadership. Back on Oak Street Plaza, Graydon O'Neill feels similarly. The skis bring a sense of resonance, a sense of proximity to his mom. It's kind of a memory that's enclosed into people that knew her and loved her. Plus, especially when they're in the mountains skiing, it's really nice and to have something of a memory of her while being in the mountains and imagining that maybe you're skiing with her. It seems in Telluride and on slopes beyond, Those memories and the spirit of Nelson are alive and burning bright. The Telluride Box Canyon is chock full of artistic talent, from musicians and filmmakers passing through to local bookbinders and dancers. But this week, Telluride is showcasing its next generation of talent with the Telluride Education Foundation's Telluride's Got Talent Talent Show. The talent show will feature music, song, and dance of all types. The talent show will take place on Thursday, January 18th at 5.30 p.m. at the Palm Theatre. Mental health continues to be an issue in our community and region. One in five people in Colorado experience mental health issues. To help the community gain skill and resources to help those in need, Tri-County Health Network is hosting a virtual mental health first aid class. The course is designed to teach individuals how to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges among adults including assessing risk of suicide and harm, listening non-judgmentally, giving reassurance and information, encouraging self-help and or professional help. The mental health first aid training will take place on Tuesday, January 30th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. The training will take place on Zoom. Registration is required and available at tchnetwork.org. The Colorado Republican Party endorsed Donald Trump for president this past weekend as the primary season heats up. The Denver Post reports that despite party bylaws against endorsing candidates ahead of primary elections, the state GOP has also already collected tens of thousands of dollars in ballot access fees from other presidential candidates. More than two-thirds of the party's central committee voted to support the endorsement Sunday night. Trump easily won the nation's first primary contest on Monday in the Iowa caucuses. Colorado and 15 other states will hold primary elections March 5th on Super Tuesday. An energy company started mining uranium near the Grand Canyon last week. As KSUT and KSJD's Clark Adamitis reports for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, tribes and environmental groups in the region have been fighting the mine for years. Last August, when President Biden designated the one million acre ancestral footprints of the Grand Canyon National Monument, he stopped almost all uranium mining in the region. But one mining operation has avoided restrictions. The Pinion Plain Mine, just south of the Grand Canyon Village in Arizona, is owned and operated by Energy Fuels Resources. On January 8, Energy Fuels notified the federal government that it had started extracting uranium ore at the mine. 
The Havasupai tribe, the Hopi tribe, and the Grand Canyon Trust have been fighting the mine for decades. They say uranium mining could contaminate groundwater and that transportation of uranium ore will disperse radioactive dust in nearby forests and communities. In late December, the spot price of uranium ore reached over $90 a pound, its highest peak in over a decade. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. In Carbondale, community members are calling for the preservation of a group of area trees, slated for removal as part of redevelopment plans on U.S. Forest Service land. An Aspen Sopris Ranger District property was fenced off earlier this month in preparation for demolition of 1930s-era buildings. Community members say that work will likely affect the trees. Before the fence went up, locals gathered for a vigil. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KDNK's Amy Haddon-Marsh has this report. This is from the Haudenosaunee people, Upper New York State. Today we have gathered and we see that the cycles of life continue. Carbondale resident Rita Marsh opened the Vigil for the Trees ceremony between the two evergreens in front of the Aspen Sopris Ranger District building on first Friday. So now we bring our minds together as one and we give greetings and thanks to each other as people. About 20 locals formed a circle and by candlelight read more of the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address called Ahon Dungari Watekwan, which means words that come before all else. We are all thankful to our mother, the earth, where she gives us all that we need for life. She supports our feet as we walk about upon her. It gives us joy that she continues to care for us as she has from the beginning of time. To our mother, we send greetings and thanks. When I was in high school in 1971, we planted the trees in Sopris Park, and I was trying to compare the size of them to these, and they're actually smaller, but um, some people say they're not as old as we had anticipated, maybe 30 years, but it doesn't matter. They're beautiful. They give us fresh air, and I'm sure the birds love them. This one tree's really dense and gorgeous, and I'm just worried that in the excavation that the other tree will come down, but it doesn't matter. When these trees and these buildings go, it's going to be a totally different cold feel and look to my hometown. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Well, I just was overcome when I got here because it's so beautiful that we're here, but it's so sad. Why, really? I just keep trying to visualize that we're jumping up and down for joy because something happens, some miracle happens, and the thing doesn't go through. It's so sad that it feels like a wake, with, yeah. and the Christmas lights are still on. <laughs> Richard Votero co-organized the vigil. And we are just, uh, I'll speak for myself, ultra sad and upset also about uh, the Forest Service's plan to build their building here, a bunch of trees get axed out that ought not to. It's really a design that's inconsistent with our historic downtown, and uh, how it's come about is very curious. The Forest Service hosted the only public open house about the project in February of 2020. 
Even though seven people attended the event, it wasn't until summer 2023 that the public seemed to take notice. Locals started circulating petitions against the plan and collected at least 1,400 signatures. Then, close to 100 people showed up at a Carbondale Town Trustee meeting in August, where Kevin Warner, district ranger for the Aspen Sopers Ranger District, talked about the project plan and brought maps and photos. The same group that started the petitions presented an alternative plan at the meeting, which kicked off more efforts to convince the Forest Service to work with them on a better design. They hosted a public event so their plan would have a wider audience. They contacted elected officials. Some in the group suggested litigation to stop the demolition until a more Carbondale-friendly design could be agreed upon. But legal intervention is not in the cards at this point. Um, it was incredibly frustrating because what the attorney said was without a stronger town backing and the historical society's backing, that they would do whatever we asked them to do, but they didn't think we were going to get anywhere. Um, and then that might not be money well spent. Candace Hart has been involved with the issue since the summer. If a team of people were present doing kind of what the town mothers did over with the uh, city market land, that basically there's a good possibility that this could have turned out differently. You know, if Hart hopes to contain the impact of tearing down the old buildings by salvaging what she can. She's already found someone who's interested in the aluminum siding. She told KDNK that she's learned from this experience. So I, I hope that everyone can wake up and realize that more needs to be done by the citizens. Votero is also disappointed that so few took action to protect the trees or support a different plan. He says the consequences of the Forest Service design concept is a huge loss for the town. I keep saying Carbondale is going to be so shocked to see what's going to happen here. For KDNK News, I'm Amy Haddon Marsh. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a 30% chance of snow showers tonight with a low around 20 degrees. Thursday should be mostly sunny with a chance of snow showers and a high near freezing. Thursday night, expect partly cloudy skies and a low around 20. Friday calls for mostly sunny skies during the day and mostly cloudy skies at night. The high is near 40 degrees with a low around 25. This has been the news for Wednesday, January 17th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.